When we left Moses last week, he was learning a difficult lesson about obedience, and that continued uh, for a little while. Even as he was on his way to Egypt, as God had commanded him to do, he had to learn a little bit more about obedience. Um, And we've all had that experience, right? Whether as a child learning to obey our parents or teaching our kids how to obey and the importance of following rules. And the reason is because as in the parent-child relationship, uh, our parents know better for us what's better for us than we do um, because they've lived life and they see things from a different perspective. And of course, as a parent, I now understand. Uh, I, I feel like I'm, I have to apologize to my parents. I don't, I don't but I should <laughs> because of all the things I did to them now that I see um, their perspective with my own kids. And, you know, that, that's God with us. There is the Father. Yes, He's God. He's holy. He's separate. But he, there's also the father-child relationship. And He sees not only, we only see what's in front of us, but He sees the big picture even more so than we do for our kids. He knows everything, past, present, future. And, and so He gives us instructions. He gives us guidelines for our own benefit. And while As we saw with Moses last week, he couldn't see how God could use him to do what he had purposed for him. God could see the big picture. He knew what was going to happen. And he even told Moses, he gave Moses a lot more information than he he does in some instances. Abraham, for example. He told Abraham, go to a land and I'll show you later where that is. But he told Moses, here's what's going to happen. You're going to go to the Israelites. They're going to believe you. You're going to go to Pharaoh. He's not going to believe you, but I'm going to force him to listen. And so he gives him instructions. He gives him assurance. And, and Moses finally uh, is willing to go. And, and that's where we are in this series. You know, you look at Moses' life and, and 40-year segments. Uh, we know that, that he lived his first 40 years, uh, first nursed by his mother, then educated in Egypt. He's, he spends his next 40 years in Midian in exile, nursed by solitude, educated by God. And then last week we is really the turning point into the last 40 years of his life, where he is educated by the law, he's nursed by trials, leading the nation of Israel toward the promised land. Um, and, and we're beginning that last 40 years with the burning bush experience. God speaking to Moses, uh, telling him, this is what I want you to do. You're going to go. It's time, finally time for me to free my people, the Israelites, the nation of Israel from bondage. You're going to be my spokesman. You're going to go to the nation of Israel. The leaders there are going to believe you. They're going to trust you. But then you're going to go before Pharaoh, and he's not going to listen. But I'm going to force him to listen. So that's the instruction that he has given Moses. And Moses is now beginning this journey. He is willing to go. He goes. And we learn so much, have learned so much from Moses' example and from the things that he did right and the things he did wrong. We look at Moses, and my goal in this study, in this journey of faith that Moses goes on, is for us to look at the life of Moses. We're studying it to experience God's spiritual principles. There are principles, standards that he has set 
for all of us and some specific to you, to me, to his plan for my life and for your life, but there are principles that he set for our own good. We want to experience those spiritual principles so that we can live a spiritual life in Christ, the life that God wants us to live the way he wants us to live it. And today, we are going to zero in on the spiritual principle of obedience. Obedience. Thomas Carlyle said, the study of history is nothing more than the study of great men and women. And in many ways, that's right, isn't it? I mean, you look through history, and you're studying history, you're studying the lives of people. And it's both great and not so great, but you're looking at people. And the Bible is the same way. God chooses, doesn't have to, but he chooses to work through individuals like you and me. And when you look at the story, God's, God's word, the story of salvation, the story of the Bible from beginning to end, it is God working through people to accomplish his purposes. It is how he uses individuals and the fact that he chooses to use individuals. I mean, history is his story. You've heard that before. And his story involves him working through people like Moses. And we see how God has already worked through Moses' life. And we're going to see even more so how he does that. I mean, you just look leading up to where we are in Scripture. I mean, you look at Genesis, and it's pretty amazing, actually. Genesis, you see, unfolds. It's the biography, really, of 12 different men that God used uh, from Abraham to Joseph. And then when you get to Exodus, the, the biography is really about one guy, one man, for the next four chapters Exodus through Deuteronomy, we see the biography of Moses. We see what God does through one man and his willingness to obey. And again, this man wasn't perfect. He's a regular guy, just like you and me, living in a world with challenges very similar to the ones that we face. Yet he was willing to be used by God. At the end of the day, even with all of his objections that we saw last week, he said, okay, God, you use me. I'll go. If, you're, if I'm who you've picked, I'll go. And he does. He's willing to obey. This is a man who allowed God to shape him into a selfless, a man of selfless dedication. Uh, he, he was immature. He gets ahead of God. He's exiled to Midian for 40 years. He learned humility, and he's finally willing to submit to God and be used by God. He becomes a man of selfless dedication. But he didn't, he didn't start that way. It was a long journey to get there, but he, he finally gets to the point now where he's accepting God's plan, and he goes. He goes just as God said. Everything unfolds exactly the way that God said. He goes before the nation of Israel. They believe him. Then he goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh does not believe him, as, just as God said. So now it's time for God to force Pharaoh to listen to him, which we see. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time in the plagues. I could do an entire series on the plagues, okay? The significance and everything that happens. So we're just going to do a brief review. Just know that each one of these plagues has to do with God proving, I'm God, your gods, little g, plural, are not the true God. There are different ways, and each of them, each of them has something to do with a, a particular Egyptian god, and, and God is, is, is in a very dramatic fashion showing them that he is the one and only true God. With the first plague, he turns the Nile uh, to blood. The Nile was a source of life for them, and it becomes a source of death. Uh, plague number two were frogs everywhere. Can you imagine? Just frogs 
everywhere you go, frogs all over the place. Gnats everywhere. I mean, I get annoyed at the ball game out, you know, just for about an hour, you know, brushing the gnats away outside. But gnats everywhere. Uh, plague number four, a swarm of flies. I mean, how, how frustrating, frustrating is it when you get a fly in your house and you're trying to kill it and you can't catch the thing? I mean, can you imagine flies everywhere? I mean, everything covered with flies. And then the death of livestock in, in plague number five. And then plague number six, the plague of boils. Oh, awful. Terrible, terrible plague. And then plague number seven, the plague of hail. In chapter 9, verses 13, 13 through 35. And then plague number, I mean, just plague after plague after plague. And, and, and Pharaoh still, his heart is hardened. He's not willing to listen. He, he just continues in his, his stubbornness. In plague number 8, we see the plague of locusts. Uh, man, uh, yeah, I've, I did a study on the book of Joel uh, the, the locust invasion uh, in the book of Joel. And, and I read about some, you know, of course, you know, there's, there's some uh, apocrypha there. It's, it is an actual invasion, I believe. It also points to the end of time, you know, the final battle, uh, good and evil. But, but I, st- I studied some actual locust invasions and what it was like. And they, you know, the people that actually lived through some of them talked about how, I mean, there were so many of them, they covered the entire sky. It was like it, it became dark. I mean, it was just an incredible experience. Uh, scary experience and the sound of all those locusts flying at once. Um, it's an amazing. Uh, read the book of Joel. It describes it pretty well. Uh, but but the, that was plague number eight and then plague number nine, just complete darkness. Um, God is making a point here. He is making a dramatic point. And the point of all the plagues, again, we could study this for weeks, but the point of all the plagues is that everyone in Egypt would know that Yahweh is the one and only true God. He's making a point here. He said, Moses, Pharaoh's not going to listen, but I'm going to force him to listen. And boy, does he force him into submission. And even though now here, you know, Pharaoh's still being stubborn, and God's going to get his attention in dramatic fashion. But the main point, the central ingredient of Exodus chapter 11 and 12, which is where we'll spend our time today, is obedience to the one and only true God. The importance of Moses, but not just Moses, the Israelites. And we'll see how that unfolds, that they follow God's instructions to the T. God speaks. Some people hear. The Israelites listen. The Egyptians don't. But some heard, and they did what God said. As a result of their willingness to listen and obey, God used them in his plan at that time in history. They heard God's voice. He spoke through Moses spoke to Moses directly, they listened and they obeyed. You know, my dad has this amazing ability to whistle. I was never able to learn it. But he said he had to learn, you know, he, when he started out working, he started, he's working in the steel mill, U.S. Steel, and, and uh, he, he, he taught himself to whistle so that without using his fingers so that if he was ever in a bind holding something, he needed help, he could get somebody's attention. And I tried to learn how to do it. I guess my mouth's just not made that way. I never could do it. But it was distinctive. It was loud and distinctive. And I could be out in the woods playing. I mean, not, I couldn't see the house, see Dad at all. But I could hear that whistle. And when I knew, when I heard that whistle, I knew I better come. He was getting my attention. Or if I was doing something I shouldn't and he was a distance away, I would hear that whistle and I would know. It was my dad. He could, I, I mean, he could whistle out in the parking lot right now, and I would know it was him. I, it's just distinctive. I know that sound. And when I hear that sound, even as a 43-year-old man, I'm going to pay attention because he's trying to get my attention. 
and as a child, certainly. You know, as God's children, God's voice is distinctive, and we should recognize it just that easily. If we are walking with him, we should recognize God's voice, and when we hear God's voice, we should stop whatever we're doing and be ready to do whatever he tells us to do. We should be ready to obey him. And, you know, the Israelites didn't always get it, get it right, but here they are a perfect example of obeying God completely. The bottom line for us, God's voice is clear. We need to listen and obey. So let's see how obedience takes shape in Exodus chapter 11. We're just going to walk. We're going to look at a lot of scripture today. We're just going to walk through it together, all right, and see this story unfold uh, before our eyes. Exodus 11, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses, I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh. He's already been, there's been eight. I'm going to bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. After that, he will let you go from here. When he, when he lets you go, he will drive you out of, of here. Now announce to the people that both men and women should ask their neighbors for silver and gold and jewelry. Now let's stop right there. Why is God telling them basically to take whatever they can with them, to ask for silver, gold, and jewelry? Well, have you ever been on a vacation and you stop by the ATM on the way out? Probably not anymore because we use cards. But you need a little cash, you got to have money for the trip, so you stop by on the way out, right? That's sort of what this is. God has a plan for this, and they don't even know what it is yet. Um, God's got a plan for this silver, this gold, and, and, and all of this. His plan is for the tabernacle. When they get to Mount Sinai, they're going to need all of this for the tabernacle. Uh, they, they don't even have a clue about this, but God knows, and so he gives them instructions. They don't know why they are to do this, but God is saying do it, so they need to do it, they need to, and, and he provides. And, of course, they, they are able to take whatever they, they ask for. He says, ask for them. They did it. That's called obedience. They are obeying. They don't understand, but they're doing. Now look at verse 3. The Lord gave the people favor in the sight of Egyptians, of the Egyptians. And the man Moses was highly regarded in the land of Egypt by Pharaoh's officials and the people. Now, just a couple of chapters back, we see Moses has a bad day. He goes to the nation of Israel, and they listen to him as God says. And then he goes to Pharaoh. He tells Pharaoh, God says, let my people go. Pharaoh does not listen. Not only does he not listen, he makes life harder for the Israelites. And suddenly the Israelites don't like Moses so much anymore. Um, so he's not very popular in the eyes of the, the Israelites. But something changes when you go to chapter 11, verse 3. Suddenly, Moses, the Egyptians, think highly of him. He's highly regarded. Now, why is that? It's on the backside of all these plagues. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, but it seems as if the Egyptians are going, hey, we might want to listen to this guy. I mean, look at what all is happening here. I mean, imagine experiencing all of these plagues. They regarded, they esteemed Moses. Why? Because he stood all alone. He trusted God. He obeyed. And everything that he said was happening. And people saw it. They knew it. And so he's highly esteemed. A lot's changed. And the lesson for us is, you know, not everybody's going to react positively when you follow the Lord. But some people will. And some of them non-believers if you will stand in obedience with conviction firmly and follow God, regardless of what anybody else says, some people will take notice. And they will respect you for your beliefs and your stand and 
you'll have an opportunity to lead them to Christ. But we have to obey. Look at verse 4. Moses said, this is what Yahweh says. About midnight I will go through Egypt, and every firstborn male in the land of Egypt will die. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sits on his throne to the firstborn of the servant girl who is behind the millstones, as well as every firstborn of the livestock. Then there will be a great cry of anguish through all the land of Egypt, such as never was before or never will be again. But against all the Israelites, whether man or beast, not even a dog will snarl, so that you may know that Yahweh makes distinction between Egypt and Israel. All these officials of yours will come down to me and bow before me, saying, Leave you and all the people who follow you. After that, I will leave and let Pharaoh, uh, and he left Pharaoh's presence in fierce anger. Moses is basically saying, Pharaoh, listen, you've had your chance. You've withstood God long enough. You've been stubborn, and now God's going to act. He's had all he's going to take from you. He's given you all of the leeway he's going to give, and you have brought this on yourself. You look at the plagues, and you look at this last one. This is the Passover, of course, where all the firstborn children are wiped out, livestock firstborn wiped out and you think the temptation is to look at this and think how could God do this but this isn't on God this is on Pharaoh Pharaoh had plenty of chances to save his people Moses warned him God warned him through Moses time and time again and he refused to obey and so God's judgment this is God's judgment and sometimes we don't understand the harsh reality of God's judgment but God is yes he's loving and he's holy but he is a just God and it's only by his grace that any of us are alive today anyway, okay? And I know that sounds callous, but that's the reality. He is a holy and just God. He must punish sin. And when we refuse to obey him, he will punish. Just like we punish our kids in love, he'll punish his kids, those of us who are believers. And those who refuse to believe will ultimately experience the punishment of eternal separation from God in hell. And I know that's not politically correct or, or nice to say, but it's the reality of God's judgment. And you don't want to be on the other side of it, as we'll see through this. So God, he, he announces this last plague, the Passover, and God gives instructions to the nation of Israel. And these instructions are very specific. That's number one. Four truths about obedience that we need to look at quickly. Number one is that God's instructions are, are specific. You know, there's a lot that we don't know about God's plan, but there's a lot we do know. There's a lot of things that God has already told us we need to do that we struggle with, honestly. If we could get all that correct, then maybe God will reveal a little bit more about what he wants us to do. But there's plenty we know to do. And here we see God's instructions to Israel very specific. In these awesome moments before they leave Egypt, he instructs, they cooperate. It's obedience. Moses has already learned obedience, and he's learned a couple of times. We skipped over chapter 4. He learns a lesson in obedience there where they had, he had to, uh, his wife had to circumcise his son. He had failed to do that. God punishes Moses. He's, Moses is still struggling with obedience. But then he, you get the idea he's, he's kind of gotten it figured out now. But he had to learn that lesson. We all have to learn that lesson. Now it's time for the Israelites to learn this lesson of obedience. And God wanted the people to establish a memorial first. Look at chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, In the land of Egypt, this month is to be the beginning of the months for you. It is the first month of your year. So from that day on... The Hebrew calendar will be changed forever. It will be arranged to reflect the importance of the event that was about to take place. Look at verse 3. The whole community of Israel, 
that on, uh, of Israel that on the tenth day, tell the whole community, on the tenth day of this month, they must each select an animal of the flock according to the father's households, one animal per household. If the household is too small for an animal, that person and the neighbor nearest his house are to select one based on the combined number of people. So if your household's small, if you're poor, you can get with your neighbor, neighbor and select an animal. You should apportion the animal according to what each person will eat. You must have an unblemished animal, a year-old male. You may take it from either the sheep or the goats. So pay attention to how specific these instructions are about to get here in verse 6. You are to keep it until the 14th day of the month. Then the whole assembly of the community of Israel will slaughter the animals at twilight. They must take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses where they eat them. And one of the problems with us reading through passages like this is that some of us are just a little too familiar with it, right? We've heard it before. We've heard this story. We heard it as a child in Sunday school. We've heard sermons preached on it. But we need to put ourselves in their sandals, so to speak. Uh, imagine, you know, we've heard this story before. They've never heard this. Why in the world does God want me to put blood on my doorpost? That's gross. I mean, th- all these instructions, the you know, killing an unblemished animal, you know, all all of these things, you know, these instructions that they've never heard. We've read a million times. They've never heard before. And God is telling them they've never roasted a lamb that way. They never, you know, gathered its blood again and put it over the doorpost and over the lintel of their home. They've never heard of an exodus. I mean, we've had movies on exodus. They've never heard of an exodus. None of this stuff. Beyond that, when had an entire nation picked up at one time and moved together? I mean, they never experienced anything like this. And Moses is telling them, God is telling them here, do this, 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 very specific, and be ready, because we're about to go. What logical reason, though, in their minds, again, put yourself in their situation, what logical reason could God have? They don't know what's coming exactly. What, what could be his plan in all this? What's his reasoning in asking us to do these things with lamb's blood, to roast this lamb a certain way, to, to get with our neighbors if we don't have enough, or, or what, all of these things? Why? 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 Well, the answer is very simple. The answer is because God said so. And that was enough for them. There are plenty of examples where the nation of Israel blew it. But right here, that's all they needed. They had seen the plagues. They saw what happened. They had been in slavery. And God says, do it, and they do it. That's it. Bottom line. No dialogue, no debating, no committee meetings on the matter. They just did it. And that's pretty amazing when you think about they have no idea what God is doing and why he's telling them to do what they're doing. But they did them. He told them what would happen. And as a result of their obedience um, to his commands, we see in verse 12, he tells them what's going to happen. I will pass through the land on that night and strike every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. I am Yahweh. I will execute judgments against all the gods of Egypt. The blood on the houses where you are staying will be a distinguishing mark for you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. No plague will be among you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Well, he explains to them, this is what's going to happen. God told them, I'm going to visit Egypt, and it's not going to be good. My judgment. They're about to experience my judgment. And if I, every house that I pass that does not have blood on the door, the firstborn in that, both human and uh, firstborn male, firstborn livestock. Um, man, a frightening event. Horrifying event. 
He even told them how to eat the lamb, though. He has specific instructions for mealtime. Verse 11, here's how you must eat it. You must be, be dressed for travel. Your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand. You're at eat in a hurry. It is the Lord's Passover. This is all about quickness. They've got to be ready to go in a moment's notice. God, this is the delivery they've been waiting for. And God is about to let them go. And he's about to make history. And these people are about to be part of it. And he's saying, you need to be prepared. Have your sandals on your feet, ready to go. And from that day to today, the Jewish people would remember the Passover. This is history. They are about to be, they don't know it yet, but they're about to be a part of history. And it's because of their obedience. The reason they are a part of it is because they obeyed. They said yes to God. They did what the Lord told them. And because of that, God says, this day is to be a memorial for you. You must celebrate it as a festival to the Lord. You are to celebrate it through your generations as a permanent statute. The Lord goes on to give them even more details after this. He told them something they were to remember, though, in verse 25. When you enter the land that the Lord will give you, as he promised, you are to observe this ritual. This is something you need to repeat every year to honor this, to remember this. When your children ask you, this is important, when your children ask you what does this ritual mean, you are to reply... It is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord. For he passed over the houses of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians and spared our homes. So the people bowed down and worshiped. Now think about this. Tell your children, aren't we supposed to do the same thing? I mean, Jesus took the Passover and changed it to what event? To the Lord's Supper. And we do that periodically. Well, for us, that's an opportunity to explain, hey, here's what the cracker means. Here's what the juice means. You know, we did, we did Lord's Supper at home on Good Friday, and it was a great opportunity for us as a family to talk about the significance of that, um, what it means. But we do that with other things too, right? Mom, Dad, why did that person, why are they going overseas to be a missionary? What does that mean? How do they know they're supposed to do that? That's a teaching moment, right? Explain to our kids why people do that. And why do we help people that are hurting? Why do we feed the homeless? Why, you know, why do we do some of the ministries we do? I mean, it, this, is, this is what we're called to do as parents. If you have children, anytime you do something for the Lord, it's an opportunity for you to explain to them why you're doing what you're doing, and that's what God's trying to teach them. When you celebrate this, you explain it to your kids. We need to help our children understand the why behind our Christian walking activities. It's not just ritual. It's not just routine. You don't just go to church because it's Sunday. Here's why we do what we do. They need to know so that they will have faith and have a relationship with Christ and someday pass it on to their kids. You know, my greatest desire as a pastor is not to pastor the largest church in America. It's not even to be the greatest speaker in the world. My greatest desire as a child of God is that my kids will know Christ and that their kids will know Christ. My greatest ministry field is sitting on the front row right here. I'm sorry. If, if you're disappointed that it's not you, church family, I love you dearly, but my mission field is right here, first and foremost. Not that anything else I do isn't important, but, but this is what this is talking about. God's saying, hey, this is something you hand down generation after generation, God's faithfulness, how he rescued you. And for us, it's God's faithfulness, how he rescued me from sin and how he can do the same for them. That's our responsibility. After he finishes these, he finished with these specific instructions. Verse 27, so the people bowed down and they worshiped. Then the Israelites went and did this. They did just as the Lord had commanded. And again, man, for all the times they didn't do this, boy, they sure did follow God's instructions here. 
Time after time, they did what, the God, what God commanded. They followed his instructions. And we're back on that main word, obedience. And that's number two. The second truth, God requires our obedience. Anything less than obedience is disobedience. No such thing as partial obedience. No such thing. Any hesitation in obedience, disobedient. I mean, it is all or nothing with God. Either we're all in or we're not. Pharaoh did not, he would not obey, and as a result, he exposed both himself and the nation of Israel to God's judgment. He, he, had, he had a chance. He could have obeyed. He hardened his heart so much, God finished the job for him. He chose to disobey. You read this, God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh had already made the decision to harden his heart. God just solidified it. I mean, Pharaoh, he knew Pharaoh's heart. He knew he was not going to believe. And as a result, not only did Pharaoh suffer, which he did, his firstborn, the whole nation suffers. And, 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 Israel and the Israelites and, the Mo, and Moses, they did exactly what God said, the, the, the opposite of Pharaoh, right down to the smallest detail. As a result, they experienced not judgment, but God's deliverance. They were delivered because they obeyed. They made history while Pharaoh became history. He experienced God's hand of judgment, and that's a frightening thing, the wrath of God. My personal conviction here is that, and listen, I believe this. I think our, people talk about, I don't know God's will. I think our greatest struggle is not in knowing or not knowing the will of God. I think our greatest struggle is in obeying the God whose will it is. I think that's our biggest struggle. I think many times we say we don't know, and God's said, I've already told you what to do, and we're struggling with that. Because listen, that step of faith, imagine this is a thousand-foot cliff. That step of faith can feel like stepping off that cliff. I mean, there's always going to be that moment, that crisis of belief when we follow God. Yeah, God gave Moses some pretty detailed instructions here, but he still had to step out in faith, and he obviously struggled with that. I have struggled with that. If you've walked with the Lord, you struggle with that. But God shows us where to go. He just doesn't give us all the details. We have to be willing to follow. We have to be willing to obey. Remember, the Israelites, they're trusting God here. They've never experienced anything like this before. But they are trusting him. And they are trusting him and obeying him completely. We need to follow through. Our problem isn't that we don't know. Our problem is that we know, but we're not willing to follow through many times. Are we willing to follow through? That's the basic struggle of the Christian life. The clear truth of God is made clear to us time and time and time again. And we've got stories like this to look to, to see how God's proven his faithfulness. He's proved it time and time again. We see it. We sense the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to our hearts. Yes, I'm talking to you, God says. I want you to go. I've got an assignment for you. This is what I want you to do. We sense that. We hear it. We hear him speaking in his word. And then that, 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 that moment of, of action comes, that crisis of belief happens, and we have a tendency to say, but God, I would rather do it a different way. I, I saw this unfolding differently in my life. I saw this happening a different way. My strengths really lie in this area, which is very close to, Lord, I don't speak so well. I, I, this isn't, maybe, maybe this is, somebody else is better suited for this. That's our tendency if we're honest, we have a tendency to doubt God because our view of God is that he is just a little bit bigger and a little bit more powerful and a little bit greater version of us. 
and not the holy, one and only, all-powerful, almighty God of the universe who knows everything and never makes mistakes. If we have a problem with obedience, a lot of times it's because our vision of God is too small. We don't really believe he can do what he says he's going to do. And I've said it before, I believe, God, that this church, that we are on the verge of something big. And God is going to do something through us, but that will only happen if we get this right. If we're willing to go, God is going to stretch us. He is going to call us out of our comfort zone. The question will be, are we willing to obey even if we don't understand why he's asking us to do what he's asking us to do? We've got to obey. The Israelites did. They obeyed. We all have a calling in life. And when God reveals himself, we have to ask, are we willing to say yes or no? And I don't know what your calling is. You're a minister. I'm a vocational minister, which means this is what I do. God has called me to do this full time, to lead a, pa- lead a church, to pastor a church. But you're just as much of a minister as I am. We're all called to a ministry, to give your life to something in service for the Lord. So how do you know what that is? Well, it starts with an awareness of the need. Here's how God usually works. He shows you a need. Then he gives you an awareness that you could use, he could use you to meet that. I suddenly realize, oh, God could use me to do this. It's possible. And then there's an awareness that this could be your life's work. And there's something, there are many things you're going to do for the Lord, but there's something God's given you a passion and a heart for that he wants you to do in service for him. Could be men's ministry, could be women's ministry, could be feeding the homeless, could be you know, any number of things. Missions, overseas missions. I mean, it could be anything. God will show you, and you have to choose whether or not to follow him. Whatever the, whatever the area of service in the body of Christ in this local body, God's called you to do something, and you have to decide whether or not you're going to obey him in that. You know, I've heard people say, you know, I just don't feel called to do that. But the problem is, if I had gone on feeling, I would not be preaching to you today. Many times ministry calling has nothing to do with how you feel. There are a lot of times, I'm just going to be real with you guys, okay? There are a lot of times I don't feel like preaching on Sunday morning. I love preaching. I do. That's why I preach so long. I love it. But there are times where I don't feel like preaching on Sunday morning. I haven't been able to do this lately, but there are times where, just being honest, I don't feel like going to the hospital to visit somebody. There are times where I don't feel like meeting a need, although I know I'm supposed to do it. Ministry, many times, has nothing to do with feeling. There are plenty of times I do, but many times I don't. You know, something else is going on in my life. I don't feel good. I'm stressed out. There are things at home going on with the kids or whatever. I have a life outside of ministry, and we all do. And if I went on feeling, there are a lot of times I wouldn't do what I'm called to do. And I certainly wouldn't be doing this because I did not feel like God could use me in this capacity. So we have to get past that. It's not a matter of what I feel or don't feel, what I think or don't think, what I know or don't know. It's what, who is he really? Is he God? Because if he is, what he tells me to do is the right thing to do. The Israelites had to struggle with that. Obviously, Moses' influence was great here. You know, my feelings will change from day to day, sometimes hour to hour, just like the weather in Alabama, right? If you don't like the weather, wait a minute. And it's true. Our feelings are like that. We can't go based on feelings. We have to go based on what God says because we never know 
how what God's calling us to do will impact not only our lives, but here, future generations. Somebody sent me this. I think it may have been Mandy. I think it may have been you. I don't remember. This was a while back. You probably saw it. Um, The Tacoma News Tribune from April the 11th, 1953. Um, In Pasadena, Mark Sullivan, uh, he was the president and director of the Pacific Telephone and Telegraph Company at the time, and he made a prediction. He said, this is what's going to happen. This is 1953. He said, this is what's going to happen. This was his vision of what could happen with telephones. You should listen to what he says. Just what form the future telephone will take is, of course, pure speculation, he says. But here's my prophecy. In its final development, the telephone will be carried about by the individual, perhaps as we carry a watch today. I meant to wear my Apple watch to make the point, and I forgot. I usually don't wear it on Sunday morning because I get notifications that distract me. Uh, But, I mean, that's that's pretty, pretty amazing, right? Maybe in the form of a watch, like we carry a watch. It probably will require no dial or equivalent, all I'd have to do right now is say, hey, Siri, and all your phones would wake up, wouldn't it? That's what he's talking about, some form of that. It probably will require no dial or equivalent, and I think the users will be able to see each other if they want while they talk. Well, we've done a lot of that the past few months, haven't we? Pretty amazing. Who knows, he says, but what it may actually translate from one language to another. Yeah, my kids have done that to me before, changed the language on my phone. I think it's funny. But all of that, and that's pretty amazing. He had a pretty accurate vision. Sometimes people get it right, don't they? A lot of times they don't, you know. They they also predicted that we'd all be using fax machines right now, and we don't use them that much anymore. So, you know, it goes both ways. Very seldom do we actually know how what we're doing, or we don't pay attention a lot of times to how what we're doing will impact the future. But it will, especially when it comes to serving God. The Israelites may not have felt like smearing the lamb's blood on the door. I wouldn't have, would you? It's kind of gross. They might not have felt like doing all of this for this first Passover. And I guarantee you they didn't completely understand the Lord's reasoning, and I guarantee you they didn't know what kind of impact this was going to have, not only on their future generations, but on us, how Jesus would take this and transform it and the significance to apply to his death on the cross his resurrection, his blood, his body, the salvation. See, God's plan was bigger than even their future immediate generations. It extended to us. There's, in, there's significance here. And we need to think about the fact that when God tells us to do something, it's not just for the here and now, it's for eternity. We're investing in eternity. This is kingdom value here, eternal value But they followed the instructions without understanding all the details, all the whys, the wherefores, the whats, what twos, all that stuff. And a few hours later, they were really, really glad they did. Obedience always pays off because God always does what he promises. You know, people let you down. We're in political, we're in election season, right? A lot of promises are being made, right? I mean, a lot of those probably aren't going to come true. I'm not going to try to put a percentage on it. And it's a struggle to determine who to believe these days, isn't it? A lot of uncertainty in life. A lot of numbers being thrown at us. We don't know what to make of half of them. But I guarantee you one thing. God will never lie to you. Never has, never will. God always does what he promises. Look at verse 29. At midnight, the Lord struck every firstborn male in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the prisoner who was in the dungeon. Every firstborn livestock as well. 
This is exactly what God said would happen, isn't it? Exactly. God keeps his word. Verse 30. During the night, Pharaoh got up, he along with his officials and all the Egyptians, and there was a loud wailing through Egypt because there wasn't a, a, a house without someone dead. Imagine the sound. Mothers screaming in the middle of the night. A horrific event. But God warned them. He said this was going to happen. Death was everywhere. There wasn't a house in Egypt where someone hadn't died. But then you go over to Goshen. Blood over the doorpost. Wailing all around. They could hear it. But they were safe. They were delivered. God protected them. Why? Because they listened to God and did what he said. They obeyed. As a result, they were saved. They, death in Egypt, but the Hebrews were alive. We live in a world surrounded by death. We were all at one time dead in sin. But those of us who know Christ, we live in this world of death, but we're protected. We're alive in Christ with a future in heaven. All the Hebrews were protected. Verse 31 says that the, that the grieving Pharaoh now calls for Moses and Aaron. Verse 31, get up, he says, and leave my people, both you and the Israelites, and go worship Yahweh as you have asked. Take even your flocks and your herds. I don't want any part of you still here, he's saying. As you asked and leave and also bless me. Kind of strange, huh? It's a little too late for that, unfortunately. And listen, my heart grieves for people like this who refuse even with all the evidence in front of them. Just look at creation, yet they refuse to believe. Pharaoh wasn't the only one wanting to get rid of them either. Look at verse 33. The Egyptians pressured the people. You get the idea. They're asking for gold, and they're like, hey, listen, take whatever you want. Just get out of here. Leave. We've had enough of this. They pressured the people in order to send them quickly out of the country, for they said, we're all going to die. And since they were obedient, listen, go back to the instructions. Eat with your sandals on, standing, your staff in hand, ready to go. And because they were ready to go, the Egyptians, I mean, the Israelites walked right out of Egypt. Verse 37, the Israelites traveled from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 soldiers on foot besides their families. Scholars put this number at about 2 million total. Can you imagine the logistics of picking up 2 million people and moving? But they were ready to go. They had had some time. They had followed instructions. They were ready to go. And at the drop of a hat, boy, they went. They, the reason, though, is because they had been obedient. And it's here we learn the truth that God rewards those who are obedient. He doesn't have to. We should do what he says because he's God, but he has a way of blessing us beyond what we deserve. He does that time and time again. And he rewards those who are obedient to him. You know, you and I have a different perspective here because we're reading the book. We have the book. They didn't read the book. They didn't even have the book. They didn't know what was going to happen. They're doing all of this on faith. You and I look at it and we know the ending. We've heard the story, but they're doing this on faith. There was nothing guaranteed in all of this, and this is so important. There was nothing in this for them guaranteed except God's presence and his promise. That's all they knew. They had experienced the power of God. They knew he was there. And the promise they had was that God was going to provide, that he was going to take care of them, that he was going to protect them. But that is all they needed. And here's Moses. I can't talk too well, but boy, he's, this shepherd's leading the biggest flock he's ever led in his life now. And he is God's man. 
And because of his willingness to obey, God's going to use him to make history. Centuries later, their descendants would sing about this. Numbers 9, verse 9. They saw, you saw the oppression of our ancestors in Egypt. You heard their cry at the Red Sea. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh, all his officials, and all the people of his land. For you knew how arrogantly they treated our ancestors. You made a name for yourself and that endures to this day. I mean, they didn't know. These people didn't know they were making history. They didn't know that their great-great-great-great-great-great-grandchildren were going to be singing about this and talking about this. But it goes to show that you never know what God will do with your simple obedience. You never know. Saying yes to God and moving out in faith at his command has an incalculable impact on both time and eternity. You never know what God will do through your obedience. How you and your willingness to obey will impact generations to come. A lot of us have the idea that if we step out in faith, that if we give up what we want and follow God, our lives are going to be miserable because we're not doing what we want. But that's not what happens. In Psalm 105, the psalmist gives us some insight from, from the Exodus that Moses didn't take time to put in his journal. Psalm 105, 37. He brought Israel out with silver and gold, and no one among them stumbled. Not one person stumbled. They all succeeded in doing what God called them to do. None of them stumbled. They, God gave them the health they needed, the stamina they needed, the strength they needed for the journey ahead. ahead. He equipped them for what he called them to do, which is what God does. He equips you when he calls you and when it's time to do the assignment. Many times, not before. Sometimes before, but not often. Verse 38 of Psalm 105. Egypt was glad when they left, for the dread of Israel had fallen on them. He spread a cloud as a covering and gave fire by night to light up the night. God took, took good care of them. Verse 43. He brought his people out with rejoicing. He chose his chosen ones with shouts of joy. They weren't miserable. They're shouting for joy. Because they're doing what God's called them to do, and they're experiencing his power on a daily basis. And they never would have experienced this had they not been obedient. So the question for us is, are we going to be obedient? You know, when we have the opportunity to take a stand for Jesus, are we going to do it? When he calls us out, even if we don't understand what he's calling us to do, will we do it? But here's something just to think about, all right? Jesus was obedient to the point of death on a cross. And if you're a Christian, here's what he promises. That on that day, when you stand before God in judgment, which we all will, both the saved and the unsaved, different judgments, but we'll still stand before God. And we'll be shown everything we've ever done. What Jesus promises is, when that time comes, he will not deny you before God the Father. If you, if you follow him, he will not deny you before God the Father. The question for you and me is, will we deny him before men? Will we follow him completely, unabashedly, unashamed? Will we stand for the Lord? It can be scary. It takes faith. But let me, let me show you, just kind of illustrate for you how to take care of that, that fear, all right? I've got just a, a small jar here. You know, we all have a lot of things going on in our lives, right, that are scary. I mean, honestly. And, and you know, sickness you know, unrest, social, racial, all this sort of stuff, everything. And it's all serious and it's all scary. And, and a lot of times in life, and listen, when God calls us to serve him, it can be pretty scary, can it? I mean, the Israelites, I guarantee you, were, were, were nervous 
about well, all this death around them, all these things going on, they're, they're a little nervous. They're scared. But a lot of times, this, is, this, this represents your life, okay, my life, all right? This represents fear. I, I'm just going to use a little bit, okay? J- just a little bit. But what happens is, I'm a little more, because there's a lot of fear, right? <laughs> what happens, though, we get a little bit of fear, and then everything else in life, life is worse, isn't it? it? Everything's magnified, and so we just get shaken up by life. And this is what happens. Our lives are full of fear. And so what do we try to do? We get scared. We try to work on it ourselves. What happens is every time we work on it, we shake it up even worse. It just gets worse and worse, and it goes everywhere. right? I mean, we're just full of fear. Now, how do you get rid of this? I mean, you, you, can't, just, you, I mean, you can't just do it yourself. Something's got to replace this, right? I mean, if you want to get rid of fear, you've got to replace it with something. Now, this is red-ish. Because it represents the blood of Jesus. And what happens is we're filled with fear. The only solution to that is that you've got to be filled with Jesus. If you want to get over fear, you, you want to get rid of it once and for all, you've got to replace it with something else. So when Jesus comes in, he just doesn't just come in a little bit. He comes in all the way. He fills you up. And the love of Jesus Christ is how you get rid of fear. No more fear because Jesus fills you with his love. And when you can walk in total dependence upon him and you can trust him completely, yeah, life's still going to be scary, but you can step out in faith just like the Israelites did. They didn't know what was coming. They didn't know the significance of what they were doing. All they knew was that God was going to be there, that he was going to, his presence was going to fill their lives, and that he was going to protect them. You and I, are having advantage over them. We're on the back side of the cross. We've seen the most spectacular display of love man has ever known. God himself gave his life and paid our price on the cross. He became our substitute. He took on the punishment meant for us, and he offers us the free gift of eternal life. We can be filled with his love because he gave us himself. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead. And here, you know, I don't want to simplify things, but here's, here's probably two where you are today. I'm going to put you in two categories, maybe three. Let's say three, all right, because I like three. Number one, you don't know Jesus, and he's calling you right now to step out in faith and trust him with, for salvation. He's the only way to the Father. And you're, you're, you're trying to make a decision. Is that real? Do I trust him? Is he really the only way? I guarantee you he is. And I guarantee you if you make the decision to follow him and trust him with your life, it won't always be easy, but you'll never regret it. I guarantee you. So maybe that's you. I encourage you to call out to God. Ask him to come into your life, forgive you of your sins. You don't have to know everything there is to know. We'll help you know the next step. If you want to make that decision, you can make it right where you are. And then you, you let us know. And I'll tell you how to do that in a little bit. And we'll help you take the next step. Some of you are in a different category, though. You are struggling with what to do next. And God is saying, I have put you right where you need to be. You need to serve me. Be faithful. Keep those sandals on. Your staff's in your hand. You do what you know you're supposed to be doing. This is where I've put you. I want you to bloom where you're planted serve me faithfully. And then there's another group 
There's some of you that God is calling you to step out in a new direction. It may be ministry. It may be missions. It may be joining this church. It may be something completely different. Some ministry nobody's ever thought of. And you're struggling with, do I do it or not? Do I trust God or not? And God's saying, get ready. We're about to make history together. And you have to make a decision. Will I obey God or not? And, and all of us fit into one of those categories, right? I mean, we're all called to serve God wherever we are. The question is, will we choose to obey? God wants to make history. He wants you and I. He's allowing us to be a part of that. And I believe in a big way. The question is, will we follow? Will we trust him? Will we obey? Let's spend a few moments in prayer about that. Father, you are holy, you are awesome, you are the one and only true God of the universe. No one is like you. You created everything that we see. We exist because you chose to make us exist. Our lives are in your hands. We've seen dramatic display of that in our study today. You are a God who is able to do things that we could never imagine. You have a, a, an intentional, specific plan for history, past, present, and future. A kingdom purpose that's beyond our temporary existence. But just as we saw with the nation of Israel, we can be a part of that. We can be a part of something that has, has significance that will last throughout all of eternity. But we have to obey in order to be a part of your history, your story. So that's the question for all of us. Maybe there's someone out there right now, you're calling into a relationship with you for the first time. And the decision they have to make is, Jesus, are you really who you say you are? Are you really the only way to heaven? And if so... They have to make the decision of whether or not they're going to trust you with their lives. You're the only one that can provide forgiveness of sin. You died on the cross to pay that price. You're raised from the dead to conquer death. But we have to accept you. You will not force yourself on us. We have to accept. And I just pray that if somebody out there is struggling with that decision, that they would just surrender. They would just believe, even without all the answers, that they would just trust and find the same joy and satisfaction that I know in my heart, the joy of knowing you, the safety and security of being your child. And for those that are struggling with obedience in other areas, whether it's right where they're planted or whether you're calling them to something different, Lord, I pray that we would just surrender to your will, that we would be willing to obey you wherever you lead and whatever you ask us to do, regardless of whether it makes sense in our finite minds or not. God, I pray that we would be determined to obey you wherever you lead. And I know if we do, we don't know what the future holds, but we know that if we follow you, we will not be disappointed. Even if we don't see the results of what we're doing, we know that they will have impact for eternity because you are the one doing and you are the one leading. God, I thank you for allowing us to be a part of your work. You don't have to, but you give us that privilege. And I pray that we would listen and follow your will and your way. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.